Now we join the Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas. It's great to have all of you with us, both those here in our gymnasium and those joining us at KFUO.org worldwide, and of course those also joining us on KFUO AM 850. We're going to today be looking, as we usually do, at the scripture lessons that are assigned for the coming week, not today, but for the coming Sunday. And here at St. Paul's, as I would guess in most Lutheran churches, we're going to be looking at those scripture readings assigned for the Reformation. Even though the Reformation will take place on Tuesday, uh, a week from this Tuesday, on next Sunday will be Reformation here. And the following Sunday, we'll be looking at the All Saints Day readings and celebrating that. Just a word of announcement, first of all, for those here at St. Paul's and De Pere, that next Sunday, we will not be having a Bible class here in the gymnasium. All of our Bible classes will be combining in our church sanctuary. We will have a special presentation by Reverend Paul McCain, and it will be titled, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. And that will be the presentation that will be going over KFUO also at that same hour. So just again, a word of notice on that. And we look forward to that presentation. Next Sunday, we will be celebrating, of course, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and giving thanks to God for that. So with that announcement, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you who spared not even your own Son, but delivered him up for our deliverance and our justification, we come before you this day with thanksgiving and praise for the fact that we are not saved by anything we do or don't do, but rather through what your Son has done for us. By your grace, your undeserved, unmerited love for us as sinners, you have showered down the gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. We pray your Holy Spirit's guidance today as we continue the study of your word that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word and be strengthened in our walk of faith with our Savior. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we'll take a look, first of all, at the collect for the day that's at the top of the sheet that is uh, here in our gymnasium and is available online as well. As I often mention, the collect, uh, according to what its title is, collects the main thought or thoughts for the day and summarizes them in the form of a prayer. And so we'll see a couple of Reformation uh, justification by faith references here. By the way, of course, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if next week we're celebrating the Reformation, the main theme of the day is justification by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, probably goes without saying, but as a friend of mine always says, if you don't say it, it doesn't get said. So we better say it. That's the theme for next Sunday. And we'll see it especially in the epistle lesson. But remember that this is a festival day, so all three of the readings should align with similar types of themes, and we'll see that today. Ordinarily, it's the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson that line up, but today the Epistle lesson, in fact, in most churches, I think the Epistle lesson is the main lesson, uh, we might say, for Reformation Sunday from Romans chapter 3. But first of all, the Collect. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us, here's a Reformation word, steadfast in your grace. Notice there's another Reformation word, and truth. God's grace again, his undeserved, unmerited favor upon us as sinners. So grace, you see there, truth, the truth of his word, right? as opposed to anything or anyone who would deceive us or lead us into false belief. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Uh, deliver, uh, defend us against all enemies. And you can almost hear Luther there saying the enemies of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh, right? The, the unholy triumvirate, we might call them. Uh, so protect us or de defend us against all enemies and grant your church your saving peace. And it's the peace that we can only have, knowing that our sins are forgiven, not through what we do or don't do, but through what God has done for us in Christ. 
So you can see in the collect uh, several Reformation themes, we might say, or main subjects that, that run through it. We're going to start today uh, with the epistle lesson, just to make sure that, that we get it in and talk uh, thoroughly through it. You might notice that the scripture readings, ironically, are rather short for Reformation Sunday. There's not a whole lot there. Uh, we're going to talk, first of all, in the epistle lesson from Romans chapter 3 about righteousness. And there are really two types of righteousness that we will see in uh, Romans chapter 3. One is called the righteousness of God, and it is the fact that God is righteous. In other words, he is holy, he is blameless, he is faithful. In other words, it's an attribute or a quality of God. Okay? Then there is the righteousness that is from God given to us simply as a gift. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ that comes from God as a free gift. Now, just as a little background, we talk about the Reformation and what the context was for this. Um, back in Luther's day, I don't know how many of us, you know, really kind of fully take this in, but death, in Luther's day was much more a part of life than it is for us today. Food was not nearly as plentiful as it is today. Uh, disease and illness was a way of life. Uh, half of the children did not survive to adulthood. There was a plague that came through uh, Saxon areas and really all parts of the territory in the 1520s, and people were dying left and right, and it had a deep impact on Luther. And so with death so much in front of people in their daily lives, there was an ever-present concern about my eternal destiny, my eternal welfare, What's going to happen? Or what happened, what happened to my child who died? Or what happened to my brother or sister who died? Because death was so prevalent. And to add into the feeling of insecurity at that time, the church at that time had portrayed God as more of an angry, uh, vengeful, uh, wrathful God who was just waiting to get his hands on you and punish you for sin. I, you know, this is a matter of opinion, but I think today we try to have a law and gospel approach to God, that we don't undermine the facts of sin and the wrath of God uh, toward unrepentant sinners, but on the other hand, that's not the whole story by far, right? And, but at that time... God was really portrayed that way by the church. And you had these street dramas taking place where out in the streets you could see the players and God was, I remember seeing a video uh, portrayal of one where God was, you know, you remember the movie Jaws and he had jaws of teeth and the jaws were going up and down just waiting for sinners to, to come. And so the people then facing death around them at all times really concerned about what's going to happen to me and what's happened to my relatives, you would turn to the church for answers. And what would they receive? Well, yes, Christ crucified and risen, plus, and it's the plus that we object to. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, especially at that time, but it is still the case today, would say that there is what's called a treasury of merits. And this treasury of merits consists of the extra good works that all the saints did, over and above. And they're sort of put into this heavenly bank account, you might say, uh, that can be drawn upon. Okay, So maybe St. Paul for example, did, they're called, uh, there's a big theological term for this. They're called works of supererogation. If you ever want to impress people, you can say, today in Bible class we learned about works of supererogation, which means they are over and above 
what was supposed to be done, right? Now, right away we would say they didn't need to do any works, did they? (laughs) Uh, Christ did it all for them on the cross. But then, you see, we as, or they as, as sinful people at that time, could draw upon the credit, you might say, of these extra good works in that treasury of merit. And one way they could do that would be uh, through the purchase of an indulgence, uh, which was at that time a piece of paper that was signed by the Pope, supposedly, which gave you uh, many, many years out of purgatory. And of course, we have, we have issues with purgatory as well. We don't believe it. Um, Purgatory, and this is sometimes misunderstood, purgatory, the Catholics believe, is not a place for non-Christians to go. They would agree that non-Christians are, are in no way in line to go to heaven. Purgatory is a place for Christians to go, to finish being purged of any sins, any guilt, uh, any taint of guilt that still remains with them for things like unconfessed sin, forgot to confess that sin, Got to go and be purged of that. See, that's purgatory. You're being purged or purified. And so a part of what could happen is you could buy an indulgence and lessen the time for you or a relative or a friend. And uh, the most celebrated salesman of those indulgences was a guy by the name of John Tetzel. Maybe you've heard about him. He came into Wittenberg and into Saxony. And uh, Luther's parishioners started showing up for confession and handing him a piece of paper that they purchased. And he said, what's this? And they told him. And uh, Tetzel, of course, was famous for the slogan, as the coin in the coffer clings the soul from purgatory springs. And at that time, the money that, a lot of the money that was collected from these was used uh, by the Pope to uh, refurbish buildings in Rome and to build St. Paul's uh, Basilica in Rome. And so Luther objected strongly to these. On October 31 of 1517, he posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, primarily written against indulgences and uh, challenging uh, others to a debate about indulgences. Luther went through these, uh, this struggle in his own life. Uh, he entered a monastery. His father wanted him to be a lawyer. And uh, to help him, his father Hans was a copper miner manager and wanted Luther to become a lawyer so he could help him in legal disputes with the, uh, with the workers. And Luther ends up going to, to law school, didn't like it. Uh, comes back and in a thunderstorm, thinking he is going to perish, promises God that if he is spared, he will go off and become a monk. So he does. And Luther could not find comfort for his sin or from the guilt of his sin. He tried things like physically punishing himself, beating himself, going long hours without sleep, staying outside in the cold for three days at a time, fasting and not eating, and through all of that, he could find no peace. Why is that? He never knew if he had done enough. And that's the problem. You're trying to do it yourself. You never know when you've done enough. Luther would, when Luther would go to confession, he would be in there for hours, delineating every single thought. Then one time, He's in there, he goes through all this confession, he leaves, and then he remembers another sin and comes back again. And finally, his confessor told him, come back when you have something really important to tell me, you know, because it was every single little thing, you know, things that he did and things that he could have done that he didn't do, and it went on and on and on. So it's through Luther's, the lens of Luther's own personal struggle that he comes to the book of Romans and discovers there through God's word and working, the Holy Spirit working through that word, that the righteous shall live by faith. That we're made righteous before God, not through what we do or don't do, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's in Romans chapter 1. 
We're here in Romans chapter 3 today, and we're going to see that really driven home. So let's take a look with that as background, and uh, we could talk about the, the background of the text as well. The church in Rome is uh, comprised of both Jews and Christians, and they're trying to figure out what role does the law play. And if Gentiles are going to become Christians, do they have to also keep the law or not? So what makes a good Christian? And, and we're going to get into that. Let's take a look, starting at uh, Romans chapter 3. That should be verse 19, starting there. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So let's stop there for a second. Those under the law would be those under the, first of all, the curse of the law. It's pointing out our sin and ascribing punishment. That's all people, really. So that, notice there, every mouth may be stopped. It's almost as if God is saying, every mouth may have a sock put in it, you know? If there's any chance you're going to try to justify yourself, the law is going to make that impossible because everyone is under the law. And notice there, the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, in other words, are going to be held accountable to God. So there's no getting off. There's no getting a pass, a free pass here. The whole world is going to be held accountable to God. And notice verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is about as universal and blanket a statement as you can possibly have. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, that word justified, let's talk about that for just a second. That is a forensic or legal term. Uh, It's as if you're standing in the court of law and the verdict comes down. It's to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And that's the work of God. That's not our work. It's given to us freely. Every time the word justified is used in the scriptures, it's always in the passive sense. It's always that we are being justified or we are justified. Nowhere in the scriptures do we justify ourselves. It's always in the passive, okay? So uh, notice there that we will, we will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what is the main purpose, The we'd say the, Uh, of the three uses of the law, what is the chief purpose or use of the law? What's its main function? To show our sin, right. That second use of the law we we, uh, refer to. uh, In confirmation class, we talk about it being like the mirror that shows us our sin, right? When we all got up this morning, we all looked in the mirror, and there we were, right? Exactly (laughs) as we were. Uh, We may or not have liked what we saw, but there we were. And that's the role of the law. It shows us exactly as we are. It doesn't show us the way we want to be seen or think we should be seen or think we might be. It shows us the reality that we are sinners, okay? So that is the main purpose or the main function of the law. God never gave the law so that we could try to justify ourselves in his presence, It's to show us our sin, show us our need for a Savior. All right? Uh, Now, he goes on, but now, in other words, now New Testament time, now the righteousness of God, now that's God's own righteousness, his quality, his attribute, the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been revealed to us apart from, from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, uh, the idea that all the way through the Old Testament, 
God is pointing ahead to what is going to come. Even from the very first promise of a Savior, which is where in the Scriptures? Genesis 3.15, right after the fall into sin. God promises he is going to send one who is going to crush the head of Satan. And from that point on, we have God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. A reference again to the Savior who is going to come from the line of Abraham. And as we move through the Old Testament, it's almost as though we are looking through binoculars and at first we have just a vague image out there of what's going to happen. And as we move through the Old Testament, it's like we're turning the focus wheel and getting a sharper and sharper image of the Savior who's going to come. He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to come from the town of Bethlehem. He's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to be born of a virgin. It gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and we get a focus on the Christ who is going to come. So all the way through the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are bearing witness or are testifying to the fact that this Savior is going to come. Okay? Then uh, verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice there, just as the, condemn, uh, the condemnation was universal for all, notice also that the righteousness of God through faith is universal for all who believe. There's an important qualifier on there, for all who believe. There is no other way to be declared righteous in the sight of God. It is only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that for some people today that is offensive. That sounds uh, uh, sort of separatistic and unloving and a whole lot of other negative adjectives we could use. But we have to say what Scripture says. I often say that if, if God uh, has some other way, he sure has not revealed it to us. The scriptures are very clear. You know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, or in the book of Acts, there is no other name given under heaven among whom we are to be saved. And so again, it's not for all, it's for all who believe. Okay? And then he goes on. Uh, there is no distinction. Notice here there's going to be, there's going to be universal condemnation and then again the, the uh, believing universal salvation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, you can also translate they lack, they lack uh, the, the glory of God. It's almost uh, reverting back to creation language here where we've got that we are, we are formed in the image of God. And all have lost that. We have all lost that. Okay? Everybody. And notice now, are justified or are, again, pronounced to be righteous by his grace. That's God's grace. His undeserved, unmerited love. Notice as a gift. It, it couldn't be any more clear that this is simply given to us. It's nothing that we do on our part. Through the redemption, notice we have there, the, what does it mean to be redeemed? Anybody know? Bought back, yes. Bought with a price. Purchased with a price. What was the price we were bought with? As I leave a dangling participle out there. <laughs> the blood of Christ, right? Yeah. Not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. It was the blood and the life of Christ that purchased us, that bought us, that made us his own. Okay? And notice there, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, well, here's an everyday word, right? Propitiation. We won't, we won't ask that. That's kind of a Jeopardy question if, that, if we're on the uh, daily double of Jeopardy. Propitiation has with it, again, the idea of being purchased, but it's interesting. Uh, in the Old Testament, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, 
there was what was called a mercy seat. And on top of that ark, on that mercy seat, is where God said he would be and he would be present with his people. And also, during that uh, time when the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood, uh, the one time a year on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And so Jesus, another way to look at this is Jesus is our mercy seat. And it's his blood, of course, that is the ultimate sprinkling for all of us. And it's his blood that cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. So God put him forward as a propitiation, notice there, by his blood to be received by faith. Again, it all comes to us simply by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, again, this is the quality that God has here. This is not the righteousness that comes from me, comes to me from him. This is God's righteousness, his quality. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And this is because he knew exactly what he was going to do, namely send the Savior. Okay? Passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, again, the quality he has, at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. There's those two uses of justify and righteousness side by side, that God is just and he is the justifier at the same time. For Notice there, for the one again who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Now, who might have been boasting about the law, they have the law, they're children of Abraham, and they're going to be, they, they keep the law, uh, we don't need any of this stuff, the Jews at that time, right. What, in fact, if we were to go back, those of you that are in Living Way Bible study here during the week, this is exactly what they were doing in chapter 2, and Paul blows them out of the water with any sense that they, they should be boasting about the fact that they're keeping the law, all right. So uh, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Or uh, the word actually means it's locked out. It's like you've got it locked out with a lock and key, okay? By what kind of law or what kind of principle? By the law or principle of works? No, but by the principle or law of faith. And here's the big verse. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, okay? So, if you take verse 28 that we just read and verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, you have bookends there that are two of the most complete and thoroughgoing statements you can have about how we are put right with God. It is not by works of the law, it is by faith. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. As Lutherans, do we believe that our whole life here is a lifelong process of trying to, make our, uh, trying to be made right with God? Is that what we believe? A lifelong process of trying to be made right with God? No, it is not. Again, our justification or our being pronounced not guilty and righteous in the sight of God is an instantaneous act. It's not a lifelong process. And there again is where we differ with a Roman Catholic approach that says my justification is an ongoing process throughout my whole life. In fact, it even extends beyond life in this world where I am still purged of any remaining sin. We say no, that at the moment we first believe. And where does that happen for most of us? Probably in this room today. In our baptism, right. God pronounces us righteous. It's his verdict on us right at that point, okay? So then we would say the rest of our life as Christians is one of walking in the law, 
the much as much as we can. The Holy Spirit working on our innards, we might say, on our heart and our mind to conform us to His will. Right? Uh, it's interesting. We, in our confession of sins, we ask God to help us so that we might walk in His ways and delight in His will. Right? Not that I end up saying, oh, I guess i got to do this now. No, but that we would end up delighting in his will and walk according to his ways. And that is a lifelong process of the Holy Spirit working in us to conform us more, help us grow more into Christ-like living, Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like behavior. We sometimes refer to that as our sanctification or our being made holy in the sense of our living becomes holy, more holy, our thinking becomes more holy, and we pray for that as much as we can. We need God's, God's uh, intervention to bring that about in our life as well. But you always get in trouble if you mix up our justification, how we are made right with God, and our sanctification, the living out of our life. We call that sanctification in the narrow sense, but living out our life now as a Christian. Now I do good things as a Christian, not so that I can be made right with God, but in gratitude for the fact that God has already made me right with him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a huge distinction there, and getting that right is one of the best things we can do. I'll tell you, with our confirmation students, we, we go over this repeatedly because that's where a lot of errors in our thinking come about. And again, the only way we can have peace as people is to know that Christ has done it for us and God has pronounced that we are righteous. Nothing's going to change that. Okay? All right, let's stop for a second. Any comments, questions? Observations? Anybody? Yes. Okay. Okay, so the comment was a Roman Catholic friend who makes comments such as, I hope I'm going to heaven, I hope I've done enough, I hope I'm saved. And there again, that, whenever, again, whenever you're depending on yourself uh, and your own life, even just a little bit, there's always that nagging question, isn't there? that have I done enough? And, of course, again, the answer is you, can't, you can never do enough, and the good news is you don't have to. God has done more than enough for you and simply gives it to you, okay, by grace through faith. Jan? Yeah. So the question is, what about modern-day Roman Catholic Church? Do they still teach indulgences? Yes, it is still in their catechism. And uh, when I was doing a series here comparing our beliefs to those of other churches. I, I went straight from the Roman Catholic Catechism. The most recent, uh, uh, it's funny you should bring this up, it is remembered that um, a few years back when uh, the Vatican came out with a Facebook page, if you liked their Facebook page, you could get an indulgence. That's one of the ones that I remember seeing, and I kind of chuckled at that. But uh, the answer is yes, they, they are still. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to get into a, you know, I don't want this to go into a big uh, Catholic bashing session here, because Luther would say, even at his uh, pinnacle of, of uh, turning away from the Catholic Church, that wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, there is life and salvation. So, but we, we do need to point out, you know, what was the Reformation all about? And this is primarily what it was about. How are we made right with God? Okay? And, and it's... It, the good news, again, and Luther, as I said before, found this through his own struggle with these, with these questions in his own life, was led by God to realize that it's not through me. It's God giving it to me uh, by his grace. Okay? All right. Yes. Yeah, the question was, uh, where do the Catholics go to get purgatory? And it's through actually a couple of apocryphal books that we do not believe belong in the canon. First and Second Maccabees are two books that uh, we say were never circulated with the Hebrew Bible, and uh, there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with reading them. Luther would read them, 
but that's primarily where they get the doctrine from. Right. Okay? Any other questions? All right, let's move on to, we're going to look at, let's go back now and look at Revelation. At least we can leave here today knowing we've got the main reading out of the way. That's, that's the big one. Um, I was a little curious. I, I frankly don't know why um, we have just two verses here uh, for, uh, out of Revelation. Uh, we won't have the time to read it today, but Revelation 1 through 5 is the beautiful scene of the 144,000 before the throne of God and so on. And then we get to verse 6. And let's, read, let's just read 6 and 7, then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So we go from this beautiful picture of the 144,000 in heaven, and we would say that's the whole church. That's the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, the 12 and 12 of the Old and New Testament uh, times 1,000, which would be a number of completeness. And that's the whole church, everybody that God uh, uh, destines to be saved and is saved. Now we go to this, and there's the announcement. There's an angel flying above. Now, that's the first of three angels. There's another angel in verse 8, another angel in verse 9, for those of you that have your Bible. But we're not, the, the lesson's not going to cover the others. It's kind of interesting that over history, uh, I was reading that there are some people who try to equate Luther with the third angel that's mentioned in Revelation. We would deny that. I'm not saying this is the case. But they try to make Luther into the third angel who announces a, a judgment. But notice here what's happening now. The angel is announcing, essentially, the end is near. The judgment is now coming. First of all, he flies directly overhead or mid-heaven between the sun and the earth. Now, we have to remember, this is a vision so we're, we're speaking symbolically here in terms of this. But notice there he flies mid-heaven with an eternal gospel. Notice there, this is, again, I would go back to what we said before, this was always God's plan. It's not that he was making it up as he went along, not building the boat as he went down the river. This was always his plan. It's eternal. It didn't have a beginning, didn't have an end. And notice there, uh, an eternal gospel, to proclaim to those who dwell, or the word actually means who sit on the earth, and is this just to a few people? To every nation. There, notice again, the universality, every nation and tribe and language and people. And it's interesting, when you get to the vision of, of who's in heaven, you get the same exact description people from every language and tribe and nation. And so this gospel that is proclaimed and is eternal results in those people who hear, receive, and believe being seen in that great heavenly vision, uh, both in chapter 7, chapter 14, and chapter 21 of Revelation. Okay? And notice now, uh, with a loud voice, fear God. Now, do you think that first fear God, does that mean fear him and fear the fact that he's going to destroy me? He's going to pulverize me. He's going to wipe me out. Is that what we think we're driving at here? Okay, maybe take him seriously, believe him. Uh, let me put it this way. Do parents, uh, do children have a fear of their parents in a sense? <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, we may shake our head, but a, a fear, not fearing that their parents are going to harm them or do something cruel to them, but more of a, a reverential respect for their parents. I mean, in a sense, I guess you could fear the fact that they could punish you, but, but it's, it's a reverence or a, a respect, almost a holy awe when we're talking of God, of course, uh, for him. Uh, some people obviously don't have that and don't 
uh, live their life in that way. Uh, they have no respect for God, no uh, fear of God whatsoever. And, and that's unfortunate, but this is what the angel announces. Fear God and, notice, give him glory or praise him, because the hour of his judgment has come. Now, is that for Christians? Is that gospel or good news for Christians? The hour of his judgment has come. Yep, it's good news for Christians. Why? We will be with him. We will be reunited with all who have gone before us. I'm assuming now we're alive when this happens. We may be already have joined them. But, uh, you know, in Thessalonians, we get that beautiful picture of Christ coming and bringing with him all those who have gone before us. And uh, remember, those who have died will not precede those who are alive. They will be brought uh, forth first. Then we will join them with the Lord in the air. I mean, that's all of what's going to happen on the last day. Uh, we talked last week, uh, for those of you who were here in the sermon, about that banquet that's going to begin on that last day where God is going to swallow up death and there will be, he's going to wipe all tears from all faces. That, again, is what's going to happen on that last day. Unfortunately, uh, though, uh, for, again, those who have rejected God's offer, his invitation to the banquet, his invitation to salvation, it is not going to be uh, a happy day, unfortunately. And so there is a, a sweet and bitter uh, quality to that time. And for Christians, however, it will be a time of unbelievable joy and thanksgiving uh, with what we experience. And again, being reunited with all those who have gone before us, right? What a beautiful uh, picture that's going to be. All right, so, um, and notice there uh, that we worship him or we fall down before him, before the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Again, being in the presence of the almighty God of the universe is something we cannot even begin to imagine, right? We have people who get wobbly knees when they're in front of a movie star or a celebrity or a sports figure. Just think of being in the presence of the Almighty God. Then we will see him face to face. So it's going to be something we, again, we can't even imagine uh, as we are here. All right? All right, let me stop there. Any questions, comments before we move on? All right, we're going to go to the gospel reading, which is also short. And uh, there's an option uh, you can either do a gospel reading from Matthew or a gospel reading from John. Well, we're gonna, we chose the one from John, and we usually do. And so let's read through it first, and then we'll go back and uh, make some points on this. So G, uh, starting at verse 31 of John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. Okay? So going back now, notice here some of the Jews actually were believing in him at this point. And so Jesus responds here, how are we truly one of his disciples if we do what? Abide in his word. Or we can uh, literally say uh, kind of remain steadfast, uh, um, live in his word. You are truly my disciples. Now, you will know the truth. Now, there's a couple ways you can take this. Certainly, you can take it that you will know the truth versus knowing falsehood or lies. But there's also another way you can take this. Who is the truth? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? He is the very embodiment of truth. Uh, and, and so notice if you take it that way, it really adds 
to it, doesn't it? You will know the truth, if it's Jesus here, and what's this truth Jesus going to do? Set you free. Set you free. Okay? So he's saying again to Jews who would have been trusting in the law and the keeping of their law that there's only one way. You're a disciple of his, and that's you abide in his word. Not the law, but in his word. Okay? And you'll know the truth, Jesus, and the truth, Jesus, will set you free. Now, they respond to this. You know, we're an offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, it's kind of a curious statement. When you stop and think about it, when were the children of Abraham enslaved? In Egypt, first of all. And are they totally free right now when they're talking to him? No, the Romans are ruling over them. So it's kind of a curious statement. We think they might be talking about, spiritually speaking, we're, we're a slave to no one, so how can you say we are free? And uh, that's usually the, the point that you know, they, we think they were trying to make. By the way, just for a moment, going back to this idea of truth, who is the father of all lies and all misbelief? Satan himself. If you, uh, just for a second, if you, in fact, it's at the very end of this reading, but if you've got a Bible, just go for a second with me to John chapter 8. Look down at verses 44 and 45. Um, this is uh, Jesus not winning friends and influencing people amongst the Jews here. <laughs> and this is not his intention, of course. But notice there, this is just a, see, we're, with our text, we're at verses 31 through 36. You go down to verses 44 and 45 of John 8, and Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What was the biggest lie that Satan ever told? To Adam and Eve in the garden, right? You surely will not die when Adam and Eve tell him what God said. God just knows that when you eat this fruit, you'll be just like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And they do. And death comes, which makes him also a murderer. Exactly what Jesus called him. So again, there's either the truth or there's a lie. There's either Jesus or there's Satan. And at that point, Jesus is letting them know that they're on the wrong side of the equation at this point. Uh, he, calls, uh, he calls their father the devil, who is the father of all lies. Okay? Now, uh, just one other point, verse uh, 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Did you ever think about this? How does sin make us a slave to it? What does a slave master do? Uh, if we think of slave masters back, way back in our country's history, what does a slave master do to a slave? In control, absolutely. Owns the slave. You know, tells what you will do, when you will do it, where you will go. And in that sense, many people are a slave to sin. We serve it. And Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because you'll no longer be under the condemnation of sin. It no longer will be your master. It no longer will determine your ultimate destiny. Instead, it is in Christ. One other quick comment. If we look at, uh, we don't have time right now to do it, but if we were to look at Galatians chapter 3, we would see Paul making the point there that anybody who is, has faith in Jesus Christ is a son of Abraham by faith, okay? The Jews at that time were trusting a great deal in the fact of their heritage, number one, that they were amongst the chosen people of God, and we can't deny that. God comes and chooses them. Uh, he makes it clear it's because of no quality of their own, again, his grace.
But they are saying, we are children of Abraham, and we have the law, and those Gentiles do not. Well, of course, we as Gentiles don't claim that. But are there ways that people today can appeal to their heritage and think that by so doing they have a better standing with God? Can you think of how that might be? Yeah, my, uh, you know, my grandparents were Lutherans, and they were charter members of this congregation. My family's been in this church for 150 years. We can, if we're not careful, we can, we can end up in the same boat. And the point we want to get across here is that uh, it doesn't matter who your uh, earlier relatives were. doesn't matter. That, remember the parable of the workers in the vineyard? The one comes at the 11th hour, and he gets the whole denarius. It doesn't matter. All that doesn't matter. There's only one thing that matters. There's only one person that matters, and that's Christ. That's all that matters. It's not what we do or don't do. It's not how long we've been here. It's not who our relatives were or were not. It's all about Jesus. And that's our sentence theme for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's just all about Jesus. And, you know, we don't uh, revere Luther in the sense that, you know, I think some people have a misconception that somehow Lutherans are worshiping Luther or something like this. But nonetheless, we are thankful that in that particular time and in that particular way, God raised up Luther only so that the pure gospel would once again be returned to the church. The fact that it's, it's not by works or any, you can't buy God's grace through any other means. It's not for sale. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we just continue in that same tradition 500 years later now that we'll celebrate next Sunday, preaching the same gospel, baptizing the very same way in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and thanking God that he has done it all for us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? I think that's a pretty good spot to end. And so we'll do that. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen.